You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast, brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. When Jack Hunter was in Year 10 at Winmalee High School in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney, a teacher used his creative writing assignment as an example for the rest of the class. Although he'd always had a love of the written word, it was a turning point for Jack. He now knew for sure there was an audience to whom his words stood out. In the decades since, Jack has developed his passion, contributing extensively online and publishing four books, including his latest work, Better Than Bad, a collection of 31 short stories released in 2019. Today, his writing is a meditation, a celebration, and at times a lamentation. Jack's early success has been tempered by a series of challenges, all of which, he tells us, have shaped his perspective. Jack Hunter joins us on this episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Jack, thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. When did you realise that you could be a writer? It was a very, I suppose, slow progression. There wasn't necessarily one tipping point that I would kind of realise that this thing that I did for fun pretty much throughout my entire life was actually vocational. Um, the one instance where it started to build from was my uh, the Year 10 Year Advisor from my high school. He basically took me aside after we'd done a creative writing assignment and I assumed naturally that I was in trouble or had done a terrible job. And he actually told me that he liked it enough to use it in front of the class to kind of, I I don't know, I suppose demonstrate what a, like, you know, a creative writing story could be. And at the time I didn't necessarily think too much of it. It was just like an interesting little bit of trivia to tell people that it happened. But it was the point where I realised that people might actually be interested in hearing the stories that I had to say. And then from there, it was kind of one thing after another and just very opportune moments in my life with the right people happening upon my writing and telling me that it was good enough for them to be interested in. It was entertaining and it kept going from there. And did you find that it was a love of writing straight away or was it more, this is something people are telling me I'm good at, I should give it a go? It was a much slower burn. It was something I'd always kind of played around with. Um, the very the very fundamental level that it kind of started on when I was little, I'd just draw like, I don't know, these little stick figure scenes and just overlay that with rubbish, just what's going on in the scene as if the scene was still moving. So it was something I always did, but I never really paid much attention to it. It was just another hobby or thing that you do in your off time, like watching TV. You don't think about it. It's just what happens. And then as I got a little bit older and started doing it more, you naturally come into contact with people and from there it progresses to them reading your writing and then from there it's them telling you they like it or they don't like it. And then all of a sudden you realise that you have an audience that you're writing for. So it wasn't really a, a love-hate relationship. It wasn't even really a relationship. It was just a you wake up one day and you realise that you're doing this thing not just for fun but for fulfilment as well. Looking back now on reflection, do you think that there were times where you felt a calling to to writing in your earlier life? Uh, Definitely not necessarily with the overlaid writing. I I would hope I'm using more punctuation now than I was using then. Uh, My art style has definitely not improved. Um, 
as far as being the the calling to it, it it's not necessarily like a voice shouting from the void that, like a light like you're not necessarily being drawn to the light it's more this sense of you have to do it like you have to do it like something will happen there'll be an idea or something you want to examine that's going on in society and if you don't get that out of you you will just implode so it was very much just a form like a form of release and the fact that people have started reading along side that is you know it's a very happy coincidence when you had that moment where the teacher pulled you aside and said i want to use this as an example that was a time in your life when other things were happening as well um can you tell us about that and, and share what that period of your life was like and do you think that that coincided with the discovery of writing as a talent yeah during just not long after that uh, my family, we hit bankruptcy in the middle of the GFC. Uh, my dad lost the business and then from there it was, you know, you just lose one thing after another until there's nothing left to lose. So I think it was an opportune moment to be told that what you were doing is, uh, there's, a, there's a point of interest in other people because then it gives you an excuse to avoid the, um, kind of the negative aspects that are going on in your life. And it gives you something else to focus on, something to block out the background noise. Often with comedians, you'll find that they've turned adversity um, or hardship into humour. And I think having read your writing, I think it's obviously very humorous. Do you think that those moments in your past influenced that? Absolutely. I think like the, the big thing that I took away from that entire situation was very much something that has a lot of power over you and something that might, you know, make you self-conscious or be difficult in a social setting to discuss, the second you can laugh about it or the second you can subvert it by really laying it bare and bringing it down to its bare bones, it loses all its power. Like, if you can laugh at something, it is no longer a serious issue, which is why the really serious issues today you can't necessarily satirise because... They're not funny, and because they are serious. But then everything that you can satirise is silly enough, and once you satirise it, it becomes obvious to other people what is going on underneath the surface. You've just published your fourth printed book, Better Than Bad. It's a collection of 31 short stories, and you've written that your aim is to provoke readers into thinking cynically about otherwise sensitive issues while appreciating the importance of personal relationships. Why do you think that's so important in today's society? I think it, it's the, the classic irony that the more connected we get and the, the bigger you know, global community we build, the more we fall into isolation in groups that are populated by lots of people. So you could have maybe, I don't know, 50, 100 people in your group, but if you all think the same thing and if you all kind of follow the same ideals, then you're just one big, uh, I, I suppose, kind of hive mind. Whereas if you're forming personal relationships, every single personal relationship is going to be special for the way it enriches you and the way another person's perspective on life can influence yours or change yours or maybe even make yours more hostile. But the point is to think cynically about everything that's going on. You have to be able to remove yourself from being personally invested. So it's not necessarily a case of, oh, being nihilistic, like, oh, nothing matters, isn't that silly? It's kind of like, well, no, everything matters. Everything's very important. And the only way that we're all going to be able to figure out what's important enough for us to come together over is if we know exactly how it works. And the way to know exactly how something works is to look at it dispassionately 
with a cynical eye because if there's more in the column of cynicism in what you're examining, then it's definitely worth coming together over to try and fix. And you, you mentioned just before that today, with everything that's going on in the world, and when we produce this episode, we're in the grips of what is called coronavirus. We've got Donald Trump over in America. We've got all sorts of um, crazy things happening in the world. Are you of the belief that we can't laugh about that stuff? Is it too serious? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised the listeners can hear us for our masks and toilet paper forts, for starters, which I suppose answers the question a little bit. No, I, I think nothing, nothing is off limits. Nothing is not to be at least examined with a you know a satirical lens. I don't that nec- that doesn't necessarily mean you should go out and start offending people or start being really caustic in the way that you approach serious issues. But I do think that if you can laugh about something then you should be able to laugh about everything else because otherwise it's the same thing that that issue that is very is too serious to laugh about it holds total sway and power. Whereas if you can have a few stabs at it and deflate the air out of the big serious balloon, then it's going to do that classic funny thing where it shrivels up and blows all around the room. And then everyone can hopefully come together and have a big laugh and figure out how to fill up the balloon again. One of your short stories in Better Than Bad is about an influencer who can't even influence herself. Yes. Do you think that with everything that's going on in the world, as we just mentioned, the real problem is is in us and how we are as people? Oh... I mean, that could be the problem throughout human history. It's, it's Everyone is a bit of a, a blank canvas just waiting to be filled up. But the way people, you know, fill themselves up is they find things they like and they find things that make them happy and fulfil them. Whereas now there's, there's this whole thing where everywhere you look, you typically are looking online and people are telling you what to fill yourself up with and how to fill yourself up and... You know, no one can go out and figure out what makes them happy because they've got a self-help book that says to be happy you have to do this exact thing, which just sets people up to fail. Because then, you know, you've got your 10-step wellness guide to fixing your entire life and you maybe screw up step six. You've failed and you're not just back to step one, you're beneath step one because you were unable to succeed where someone who wrote this book was able to change their life and the life of thousands, supposedly. And as a writer, you must feel that pressure a lot. I I do occasionally, sometimes writing is, you have this impression that all of your idols and audience is leaning over your shoulder as you're writing. So every word you kind of, you know, with the clicking and clacking of the keys, you also hear the chittering and chattering of the audience right behind you. Um, but a lot of it is once you hit a streak where you're confident with what you're doing and you're actually passionate about what you're talking about you want to make sure that the audience is still entertained but you also kind of know that there will be at least someone who's on your wavelength and if not everyone's happy with it well you know you did the best you could anyway jack we're going to take a jump back to year 10 and when you discovered that passion or the talent for writing really clearly uh with everything that was going on at the same time with your family and the business how did that affect your schooling? What was happening in your personal life? As far as schooling, I, it sounds a bit pretentious and a little bit cliched, I suppose, but it, school wasn't necessarily the best place for me in general. I was never extremely naughty or rebellious or anything like that. I just didn't like it that much. I really like, you know, having friends and going to school, but I didn't like being at school. 
So when the bar was already quite low, there wasn't quite so far to have to slide under it, I suppose. Um, in terms of the effect it had a little bit later, um, I, ge I guess it probably threw me a, a little bit and, you know, you kind of make optimistic plans as to what you plan to do after high school and blah, 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 blah. But then you see something like that happen and you kind of think, oh, maybe it doesn't, you know, what's the point of really investing in something if it can just fall apart because some numbers went wrong somewhere in the world? Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that was the exact reason why I didn't immediately pursue further education or any kind of academic fulfilment. It was more just a personal choice, I suppose, at the end of the day. The follow-up to that is, did the, did the writing, did the, that newfound love carry you through the rest of, of school when you weren't quite enjoying it, but you had that talent and it was brought out by a teacher? I think so, definitely. I think that very much saved my life in a way because it wasn't so focused on being, you know, uh, not, not, not everything was a big outward expression. Not everything had to be extroverted. You didn't have to be talking and blah, blah, blah all the time. The thing that really got me with, with getting back onto writing was more inadvertently getting back onto reading as well. Because throughout high school, I think one of the worst and most ironic things about it is you kind of get broken on the rack of required reading. And you're being given all these books, and some of them are good, but some of them you just don't care about, and then you are being forced to dissect the colour of the curtains and a bunch of other stuff, which now that I am writing, you know wasn't even there. Um, and from that, I used to read a lot as a kid, and then I stopped reading in high school, so I missed kind of the young adult fiction stage. But then getting spiralled back into writing, you kind of think, oh, I'd like to see what other people are writing, and then you end up reading again. And from reading again, you have this whole new outlet to both feed into your own writing and also you know to just give you a nice quiet thing to do in a world that was getting increasingly loud. Have you found that's the most important thing for your writing and if it's not that is it something else? Um, the most important thing for my writing really is just being able to sit down and do it. Reading I, I think it would be very difficult to be a writer without first being a reader not in the sense that, you know, you just flog everything you can possibly flog, but more in the sense that you you have a sense of attachment to people because it's very hard, you know, reading is a little bit marginalised. It's a little bit of a, not necessarily a niche, but just it's not the big mainstream thing that it used to be. So by reading all these books and realising how many other people are reading these books, you realise that even though you might not be quite so loud, you are really part of a massive, massive community. So being part of that then feeds into the writing that you're doing yourself because you realise that maybe one day you will be writing for an audience and maybe one day someone who needs to read your work will pick it up at the exact same time, the exact right time that they need to read it, and will consider writing themselves. And then the cycle continues from there. And, and, you know, you can't that. You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast, brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. So Jack, for people who say anyone can write a book, what's your response to that? Oh, I'm, theoretically. <laughs> I mean, anyone can write a book, but, you know, anyone can breathe air for a set amount of time at least. 
Um, what goes into it for you? What goes in? Um, I suppose I I would say there's no not necessarily any bad ideas, and that might sound a bit ridiculous considering some of the ideas that are out there. But when it comes to fiction, especially, I think there's there's not bad ideas. There's maybe just bad storytellers. So for me, what goes into it is if you have an idea and you think that idea is really good, then you owe it to yourself and that idea and anyone who might pick up on it to do the best job that you can in presenting it in a way that engages people and gets them thinking about what you're thinking about. And what do you think makes a great storyteller? Ooh. I, I would say it's a very fine mix between being very intuitive and uh, having a poignant flair and also just being able to sit quietly in a loud space and take in what's happening because it's often the finer details that really make a really good story. It's not like world building is incredibly important and character development is incredibly important and, I mean, the plot's incredibly important, but all those things are kind of built upon the little bits and pieces happening in between. Like, you can build a world and say, they're on a planet, they got there on a spaceship, uh, other stuff happened, I won't be writing this story anytime soon by the sounds of it. Um, but really it's, you know, they got onto a ship, why did they get onto a ship, why are they leaving? Like, there's a lot of why, there's a lot of questions in between, and I think you have to answer those questions without actually acknowledging that they've been asked, and that's when you really know that you've hit a good story. And I've seen some of the feedback that people give you. Oh, God. I've read it. I try not to. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a question. What, how do you respond to feedback? And have you had people say to you, look, Jack, you actually really get it. Like, you, you've um, been able to articulate exactly what I'm feeling. I mean, obviously, I love the compliments. <laughs> and I do encourage them as much as possible. But criticism is, I find it more important. I find criticism more useful because... You can. It gives you something to work on. If if someone tells you your work's already good, then that's great. But where do you go from there? Because if you're already doing what someone wants you to do, then you can't actually progress. You've kind of hit a bit of a wall, and you have to figure it out for yourself. But if someone says this was good, this was good, this not so much, then you can put aside that stuff that was good and look at the not so much and bring it over to the other end where everything was going well. The best. Um, the best criticism I ever had, and it wasn't necessarily constructive and not very useful for building upon, um, when I was doing the novellas, I was kind of leaving, doing a bit of guerrilla marketing and just leaving them wherever I could in the hope that someone would pick it up and very naively someone important would pick it up and I'd be tremendously famous overnight, which didn't happen. Um, but I, I was at Central Station and I tossed one into a CountryLink train, just through the door and kind of walked off. A few days later, I got an email from some bloke saying, uh, my train was supposed to take three hours reading your book. It felt like eight. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That seems sort of unfair. Oh, I don't know. I I have a hard, a bit of a harsh opinion on those novellas now. I'd like to retweak them and bring them into a more kind of current style with where I'm at now. So I can see what he was saying. The novellas, you say you'd like to tweak them, but they're in print. They're there. They're yes, done. Yeah. How do you look back on that? Do do you have a sense of, well, no, that's it? Thankfully, there was a short run of print, so there is still room to go back at it with a a more aggressive red pen, I suppose. Um, Would you do that? I would like to. I'm considering, because there's three altogether, and I'm considering kind of bundling together into one book, completely revised, kind of writing them from the ground up, so you have the same plot and some stuff would be the same, but... That for me, because it feels a little bit like a waste, because 
the first, I was happy with them at the time, um, and I thought they were good, obviously thought they were good enough to share at the time. But looking back on them now, and knowing that I'm kind of capable of doing a better job, I, it comes back to that, I feel like I let those ideas down. I feel like I had the good idea, but I was the bad storyteller, and I would like to make amends with those ideas. When Jack Hunter is 5, 10, 15 years from now, the accomplished <laughs> author, would you look back on those and go, well, you know, that was a time in my life when I was writing this stuff, that was how I was writing at that time, and, and this is where I am now, and, and it's all part of the process? It's difficult to say, because, uh, I mean, some time has gone by since I finished Better Than Bad, and I really do not feel the need to go back and change any of that stuff. Um, whereas the novellas, even... even a short time after they were done, I was a very old dear. <laughs> These exist now, what a problem. And I can already see where it went wrong. It was just a bit of a naive excitement. of All of a sudden, people were interested in reading what I was writing, so I was like, I'll write lots and produce lots and that'll be great, and I don't think that was a very clever thing to do. Um, so in, in 15 years, maybe I'll look back on Better Than Bad and have the same idea, but I think it will be different in terms of that's a fixed point. I, I see better than bad as the foundation of the, my future writing. I don't see novellas as the starting point, maybe more of a bit of an experiment to get to know who I am as a writer. So from 15 years from now, I think I'll look back on better than bad and probably be a bit shaken by what it, what's in it, but I don't think I'd feel the need to go back and change anything. I want to go back to criticism because I think it's got to be one of the most important things for you. You said that you find it much more useful than praise. Yeah. I'm not, that is not an excuse to open the floodgates for the listeners here. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean, the story about the, the gentleman on the train who sent you the email, I mean, that's, that's pretty full on. But I imagine that there was a time when you first encountered criticism. Was there always a run of, this is great writing, this is great writing, and then suddenly you got criticism? And how did you take that? How did you deal with the first real strong criticism that affected you? I was very lucky in the sense that I was never coddled by um, my mum, who was the first person I would go to with anything that I'd finish. I was luckily never the person who has been told their whole life they're good at something that they're not, and then they go on national television and totally embarrass themselves in an audition. Mum was always very pragmatic without being callous in, you know, this is good, this is good, this is not good. The biggest problem I had was, you know, you're writing and you get mixed up in the idea of writing and the romanticism and you think, oh, this is good because I did it. And it's kind of the same reason that I think a lot of writing in high school, that happens because, you know, teachers really need to get kids focused on education and everything. So they want them to think that what they're doing is good because they're doing it. So they keep doing it. Um, but mum wasn't like that. She was like, don't do this ever again. If I don't ever give me a page of writing with, you know, a paragraph with one full stop in it. <laughs> um, so from there, it actually made it a lot easier to take criticism from people I didn't know. And no, I haven't yet received any criticism that really upset me. But I, I looked at it and thought, well, I can't fix that. Uh, that's who I am. Am I doing something wrong? I've always just taken it um, as on board as possible and rather than treating it as, you know, a big emotional stab, more a problem to be fixed. Would you say that your mum is the biggest influencer in your life and in your writing so far? Is there anyone else? Oh, she's definitely the biggest annoyance. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's totally unfair. Um, 
she is definitely the the first, still to this day, the first person I would go to if I wanted to find out if something was good or if I just thought something was good. Um, outside of her, with with Better Than Bad, actually, a lot of people have come forward now, and I feel like I've really built a, a small little group of people who I can send pre-release stuff and say, you know, what do you think before I... Uh, I don't give people the chance to tell me what they think before it's too late. And everyone seems to be pretty honest. I'm very lucky to have met a woman named Pauline. She did the proofreading for Better Than Bad. Um, she did it all for free. She's retired now, but she got hold of one in the novellas and we had a. Uh, she was a regular at the cafe I worked in. Um, and she basically got a hold of one in the novellas and was interested and was very excited to see someone doing it and, you know... Semi came out of retirement to look over this book and be very honest and very, very useful with her criticism to the point where some of the stories didn't make it into the book, and I couldn't be more grateful than that because they would be the stories that I'd be looking at now as the novellas, where in fifteen years I'd be like, they were all good stories, but I hate those three. <laughs> You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast. We're here with Jack Hunter, a Blue Mountains local author. And Jack, I want to ask you, what do you use as fuel for your ideas? For me, it's very much um, the real little intricacies that you see in the background in passing. Um, it's kind of rather than one big event. Like I, I wouldn't get much if all of a sudden you know I was on a train and it derailed. I think that would just be a big, exciting catastrophe. Um, whereas being at the train station and you're just looking at the crowd, taking a step back, um, you might see, you know, a, a husband talking incessantly to his wife and his wife is just strolling along stone-faced looking forward, not really acknowledge him, and yet he doesn't seem to mind. I would rather build on what led to that scenario, like why is she so dispossessed with what's going on around her? Because then you can draw back on what we were talking about before, you can you can answer those questions that you don't want the reader to have had to ask and you can have seven pages of what led to that moment, which is obviously a bit of a tipping point and yet is very subtle. And so is your, is your writing influenced by real-life events and the people and, and things that you've encountered or is it more uh, you rely on your imagination to develop those ideas? It's a bit of a, a bit of a mixed bag. If I was writing about something to do with a societal issue, or if I was satirising something, the way I kind of look at it is you have your framework, so you have the issue laid out underneath, and then over the top of that you kind of superimpose the story. So if you were writing something about, if you're writing climate change fiction, something to draw attention to that or whatever, you would have what's going on kind of factually, and then from there you put your blank canvas over the top of it and you trace it without being able to see what's beneath the paper, if that makes any sense. Because um, that way you are, you're working on the issue and you're using your own imagination to draw out what you see in it, and then you're giving that to other people and then they can build on it from there. You've done some non-fiction writing as well. How does that process differ for non-fiction writing? Is it more challenging or is it is it easier because it's all there? Oh, it's, it's so much more challenging. <laughs> I think... F- the first draft of fiction is, it's kind of low stakes because the first draft, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's the blueprint, 
you can change it, you can chop it around. It's only when you actually get to the final stage that you have to be really confident that it's good. Whereas when you're doing non-fiction, uh, the problem is almost that it's all there. It's all there already. So you are as you are making sense of something that already exists. And especially if you're doing non-fiction where you have to have facts or stats or something like that to back you up, you have to be very diligent to weave that accurately into the narrative that you're telling. So it's not, you know, uh, writing fiction is very fun because it's this big explosion of ideas and you can write two paragraphs and then delete them in a rage and then do it again, blah, blah, blah. But writing nonfiction is very much like pulling teeth and each tooth is like one sentence. But I, I must admit I do really enjoy nonfiction because it is the, the best outlet to keep myself from imploding. It gives me that chance to look at something that's going on or talk about something that I'm quite passionate about and really just tear it to shreds. <laughs> Is that something you want to do more of? And what areas interest you most in non-fiction writing? Um, I like kind of taking, like, removing yourself from what's going on and looking at it like a big eyeball floating over the scene. Um, I think the, the non-fiction that I've done, which people seem to enjoy the most, is where I'll put myself in a situation in which I am quite uncomfortable, which is typically most situations, and then I'll write about how that was and what it was like. Uh, one example was I got my chest waxed. It's not, you know, like a big Louis Thoreau adventurous documentary, but it was a very fun, quirky bit of writing that people uh, really got on board with. Uh, Something I'd like to do more is I'd like to do more along those lines with kind of more interesting things. Like I'm really quite against, you know, animal circuses and stuff like that. And I'd like to go and be that big eyeball and not attack anyone, not tear any industries to the ground, but just describe what it's kind of like from my perspective of how it's all going and like the kids running around like throwing popcorn at the animals and the animals, you know, doing their thing and everyone's role. I would say the things I'm most interested in, though, would probably be politics because, I mean, well, it's almost a cop-out. I mean, it's very easy. <laughs> There's a lot of source material there. Um, but mainly the way that things are changing, and that's a bit of a broad genre, I suppose, but stuff like like little things that maybe people haven't considered. So something I've just done recently, which... Um, hasn't found a home yet, so if anyone thinks this is particularly interesting, let me know. Um, the way that somewhere along the lines, companies have, when companies made the transition to corporations, they stopped referring to people as customers, and all of a sudden we're consumers. And I don't think anyone really has pushed back with that enough as to how kind of, um, oh, what's the word, how degrading that is the idea that we are no longer someone with the ability to influence a market or to influence a business. We are just something to be kind of force-fed kind of crappy products until we wear them out and we need new ones. And they're all riddled with planned obsolescence, so obviously we're going to wear them out. Jack, when you're writing a book, whether it's non-fiction or fiction, do you feel the pressure to come up with content? Do you, do you sit down and you've got, you've got blank pages and you go, I've got to come up with content? Or is it more a case of... I've got all these ideas in my head, I've collected them over the last few months, and now I've got a book. For me, it's a bit difficult. Like, with, with short stories, Better Than Bad, was it was almost an accident. It was, I ended up with a lot of stories, and I realised that there was enough stories there for a book, and the natural progression seemed to be to actually follow through and do that. Um, 
but the difficulty I have is that when writing a novel, I am so focused on being productive. When writing in general, I'm so focused on being productive and doing lots of writing every day. And when something happens, you know, like you get two thirds of the way through a novel and there's, you're juggling so many plot threads and ideas and everything that's going on, you can really drop it all at once and have days on end where you're not getting very far and you don't feel like you're meeting your productivity and you get down on yourself and on the writing. And the natural progression for me is to just shoot for self, uh, to shoot for instant gratification. And that comes in the form of short stories because you can spend maybe two weeks or something getting the story perfect, but you will be doing a little bit every day and the light at the end of the tunnel will always be in sight. So this is why I have three unfinished novels and God knows how many stories populating my Google Drive at the moment. <laughs> and I imagine that's where the online writing comes in as well. Blogging yes. and, and articles and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It, it almost makes me feel like an extremely unproductive, productive writer because it's the escape hatch. Writing shorter pieces is the escape hatch for me to get away from stuff that's causing me a big headache. And it's not that I have lost faith in the project or anything like that. It's just that I feel... Like, I am wasting so much time. And time for me is kind of... It's my biggest adversary. Is constantly watching the clock and thinking, I've done this much today. I did this much yesterday. I didn't do this much today. And when you're doing the long piece, that time that you're not working... You're not producing stuff adds up. When really, I mean, it could be a case of three hours on one sentence is a really good thing to be doing. Whereas two weeks on one story, it makes you feel really good and you've got that sense of being productive. But you're not doing those ideas justice. So you've left the ideas behind and you need to return to them and fix them up. And for anyone imagining a Colin Firth idea where you're sitting lakeside writing a story for <laughs> months at a time, it's not like that, is it? You've got a full-time job. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's definitely, there's nothing romantic about writing. I think that's very, that's been very much played up. Um, I, it's a case of you sit in a quiet space often a room in your house with the curtains drawn and you sit in front of the dull glow of a laptop and you just tap away at it until something comes out but really it's it's almost like the um you know like a, a painting where it's so ordinary that it's extraordinary because everything that's going on is going on in the peripheries and in the brush strokes you don't need that necessary I'm, you know, sipping a coffee in a cafe and surrounding yourself in these kind of motifs and images that popular culture kind of forces us to think of as writers. It's much more just a case of whatever works for you. Like if sipping the cafe, if sipping the coffee in the cafe is where you feel most comfortable writing, then go ahead. But I definitely feel most comfortable writing away from everyone and everything. <laughs> because there's a lot to forget about, isn't there? I mean, in your writing style and what you've talked about where you get your your motivation, your inspiration is the outside world, what's happening around you, but then you've also got to shut out a lot of it, I imagine, as well. I suppose I could think of it as locking myself in that office to write whenever I can is like putting on noise-cancelling headphones. So you're in the big crowd and there's lots of ideas and blah, 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 and you might miss something, but you really have to just shut everything and everyone out for a little while to focus on what's already swimming around. Now, Jack, the publication of Better Than Bad last year coincided with a pretty big life event for you. Can you share with us about that and how was that time for you emotionally? In hindsight, 
they're difficult times, but at the time you have no concept of what is supposed to be a normal time. Um, a few months prior to the release of Better Than Bad, I was diagnosed with bipolar. And once you get that diagnosis, it is a bit of a light bulb and you're like, oh, wow, that makes a lot of sense why I was doing all those silly things. Um, it really did make me take a step back and you, your biggest concern is, oh, God, what if this was the only reason that I was good at doing this? What if by fixing myself I will fix the problem but remove you know, everything that makes me me? which did happen for a little while. I had some trouble kind of getting on the right medications. Um, the first lot I tried was pretty much, it was like being in a, in a room where the floor is coming towards the ceiling and it's a glass ceiling and above that glass ceiling, all the ideas you've ever had and everything you want to say is up there and you're getting pushed against it, but you have absolutely no access to it. So I guess from there, coming, coming out the other side, when I finally got the meds sorted out and everything fell much more into place, you know, I won't spend 12 hours a day at my computer writing anymore. Um, but I also won't then spend the next two weeks, you know, curled up in a ball, not wanting to function at all. Rather than writing a lot all at once, I'm writing a little bit at extended periods. And I think the quality is actually a little bit better because it's more focused, it's more streamlined and I'm, understanding it on a level that is not just about expressing it it's not just a mad dash to get this crazy good idea out of your obviously slightly impaired brain it's more a systematic process and um, being diagnosed with bipolar you do look back and you realize the instances where you were not well and at that time you had no no concept that you weren't well because everything you were doing was making perfect sense i would i spent I think it was like $1,300 on flights and then got too depressed and didn't go to the airport and just missed those flights and lost that money. And that was perfectly reasonable. I um, was convinced that the global economy was going to crash, which was perhaps prophetic considering everything that's now going on. Um, so I had four ATMs where I would go to one and get $1,000 out and the other, and I was doing the classic mistrustful grandpa thing of hoarding my money under the mattress. And... Being much better now, I, I would really recommend to anyone who is having problems with it, who is worried that their creativity is a product of their pain, um, there is a way for your pain to be useful for you to use it. But for you to be able to use it, you have to get better and you have to understand what was making you sick. Now that you have that understanding of yourself, a bit more anyway, maybe not full, because I'm, I'm not sure that anybody really truly fully no, understands totally. themselves. <laughs> But you've got, it's like there's been a light shone on, on parts of you and your, your history and your past and who you are. Do you compare your writing before and after and do you go, oh, this is different? Um, no, I haven't really noticed a massive change. I think the only thing is that I feel better about all the writing that I've done now. I don't look back on something I wrote when I was having a manic episode from the perspective of a depressive episode and think, oh, dear God, what is that? And be horrified by it, never want anyone to see it, never want to see it myself. Um, it gives me the opportunity to look back on something I did objectively and to actually process it and to see where it is wrong, to see where it is going well. Um, it, it's just a much clearer way of being able to work. 
Jack, we spoke earlier on in our chat about using adversity to produce humour. Do you look at those those tough times in the, in maybe the last couple of years, the, those times that have led to the diagnosis? Will you use those and turn them into humour? Is that something that you would do, or is it, or is that sort of a taboo? No, I think again, nothing nothing is off limits. I think the the best way to kind of I guess perform at least some triage on your mental health is to look at it from the perspective of someone who might not be sympathetic. And I I honestly being able to look back on it now, I think it's quite funny, you know, withdrawing as much cash as you possibly can and putting it under the mattress because you're convinced that something because you're paranoid. Um, I think the best way that you could take power back over yourself if you've had a horrible time with mental health is to to write about it and to write about it in a way that makes people laugh and to make you laugh without being offensive. Like, you don't want to go out and start beating that drum of, oh, look, look at this silly thing with mental health that I did, blah, blah, blah. But you want to, you know, spread it out and pick apart the little bit, the little intricacies that made it you know, that made you realise that you weren't well. Because then you can look at those, and if you can laugh at those, they know they're not going to hold sway over you anymore. They're not going to dictate your life. They're not going to force your past onto your future and, you know, make you make choices that maybe aren't good for who you are anymore. You're going to be able to go, oh, I did, I did that thing when I was not well. I cannot imagine myself ever doing that again. In fact, it's actually a little bit funny that I was ever in a place where that seemed like a viable option. Do you ever worry? Does it cause you concern that you might offend somebody else? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it's particularly difficult when you have, you know, suffered from the problem because not everyone's going to know that, and you don't want someone to point the finger at you, and you don't want to all you don't want to accidentally realise that you've inadvertently, you know, fueled the fire against something that you're kind of advocating against. But I think you have to. You know, the reader has to meet you halfway and at least come into it with an open mind and know that you are trying to be sincere, that you're not out to cause anyone any offence. You're dealing with things that you take very seriously in a way that makes sense to you. And that the way that makes sense to you might be to take it quite, you know, quite humorously. I, I want to ask you about, uh, uh, again, uh, sort of about influences and, and writing influences. Because 80 years ago, 100 years ago, authors might have said that their influences were other authors. And that's talking about print authors, whether it's maybe journalists or literary greats. Nowadays, there's so much writing everywhere. It's a globalised world. The internet has made a huge difference to writing and, and journalism. Do your influences in your writing in terms of who you look to... Are they traditional authors, or do you get inspiration from online people from everywhere? Where where do you draw your inspiration? Um, for non for nonfiction, it's I mean even for fiction, it, it's the news. No matter even if it's maybe not particularly trustworthy news, in some cases that can be really good, especially if you're trying to satirise something, because by putting a you know a biased angle on it, they've almost almost they've almost already done it for you. Um, the news is great for if you want to take a current issue and put your spin on it. Otherwise, not necessarily for ideas, but just for that, again, that sense of community. Definitely traditional books, like not necessarily the classics or anything like that, but there, there are authors out there who 
you will just read everything they've written and constantly be astounded that anyone was capable of doing that. And it's almost like a competition for you to then be like, okay, they did that. I, I feel confident that I can do this. And Who are some of those people for you? Um, the first, I guess, book I read that really got me interested on try, in trying to write satire um, would have been The Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. To, I, I had never even conceived that you could take serious issues and remain serious about them while also being quite light-hearted and clever and uh, do a much better job talking about difficult situations with some irreverence without being so serious about it. Because then you, if you're serious to someone, you force them into a corner where they're either going to agree with you or they're going to disagree with you. And this could harp back on, um, you know, accidentally causing people offence. Because if you can open them up to the idea that something is funny, the worst thing that can happen is that they won't think it's funny but they're, then, they're not obligated to take it seriously. So they can just walk away, walk away thinking you're stupid. Whereas if you can open them up and they can see that something that is quite serious can be extremely funny, then you can, they can now you know, shape a new opinion around the issues of that which weren't as serious as they once thought. You're allowing them to laugh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think it's really important to be able to not take it all so seriously, to just chill out and laugh about whatever makes everyone happy you're listening to the passion and perspective podcast brought to you by sporting chance media for three decades penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the western weekender whether it's the weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence the weekender truly is the heartbeat of penrith visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every friday Jack, you've said that you've got a bit of interest in your work from major publications, uh, in your articles and other writing. Is it just a waiting game for you now with that? Oh, this is, it's absolutely my least favourite part of the entire ordeal. Um, It's, I've really only started taking writing seriously as something I want to share with as many people as possible in the last six months or so, uh, especially with the release of Better Than Bad. Um, But for getting stuff from your computer into someone else's magazine or newspaper or whatever is it's a very arduous process because you have to talk about the work as if you had nothing to do with it and as if you think it's the best thing in the world which i'm i'm proud of better than bad i'm I'm happy to promote it but not to that level not to that you know real sycophantic like corporate speak is it something that's kind of come naturally to you, the self-promotion, or is it like, whoa, this is a whole new It took so thing. long. I, the, the press release that I use at the moment, um, I have been working on for almost as long as the amount of time it took to publish Better Than Bad, and I still will, would rather not read it. I would rather read Better Than Bad than read the press release <laughs> and be less confronted by the fact that I did it. And you've said that you've got three novels that are partly written. What's next for those? Well, it's just today, actually, and I can ex- excitingly announce the breaking news that there's going to be another short story book on the way. There's going to be some more instant gratification to fill those cracks before I feel the confidence come back. Um, I-, I think that will probably come along sooner than anyone expects, least of all myself. But I am really, really focused on getting at least one of these novels done, and one of them in particular I'm 
really already really happy with and i'm not i'm not even sure how i lost the plot with it but i'm sure it would be good to go back to it with so little left and not have time to lose the plot and all of a sudden the novel's finished you mentioned that the confidence how that might go away what what are the things that knock your confidence a lack of productivity um getting fidgety and distracted at the desk uh not not necessarily the work that i'm doing uh, i will you know blow up sometimes and delete stuff and be really down that I wrote it but no one's seen it but me so it doesn't upset me it doesn't embarrass me whereas if I catch myself at the desk and I haven't been able to get what I wanted out onto the page and I'm screwing around on my phone and that's been going on for an hour without me realizing it that's when the confidence goes that's when I think why am I bothering what am I doing other people wouldn't be doing this and that's when you know everything gets put on the back burner for a few days and how do you get it back I just there is absolutely no concerted effort on my part to get it back. I just suddenly realise I'm back at the computer having another crack at something. So over the past ten years, when you've really been giving the writing a crack um, and producing a lot of material, do you find that that's always been the case? Is it always has the confidence and the motivation always come naturally at some point? Mm. I think the. The, the confidence, interestingly, comes after it's done. I usually try and at least show something to someone minutes or as soon as possible after I've finished it. Not because I'm confident that it is the best thing in the world, but because it's just striking while the iron's hot because I have no time to second-guess it. I have no time to continue tweaking it until it's absolutely perfect or anything like that. It is, it's done, someone else can read it, and then it can be out of my hands for long enough for it to simmer. And then I can go back and, you know, recast it in any way it needs to be done. Jack, how do you feel about your writing? Is it a passion and you sit down, you just love to do it? Or is it something that you think, I'm good at this, I have a gift for it, I need to make the most of it? It's definitely something that I love to do. Um, I'm rel- I would obviously be doing it a little bit quieter, but I'm quite confident that I'd still be writing away, maybe even still doing those benign stick figure overlays um even if no one was interested and even if i wasn't able to produce anything it's just this it's uh time is again my biggest adversary and one of the reasons for that is writing for me is just total transcendence even if it's even if i don't have a great day and i only get three solid hours in those three hours will just go so fast and then you know that that's why time is such a big factor for me because I feel like I'm juggling the fact that I know I'm going to lose five hours of my day in the space of what feels like five minutes so I have to kind of plan around what's going on there um I I never feel better than if I can just do some writing and it is very much a, a euphoric high to be able to get something out from the writing you've just recently started in a new job this year you are looking at starting up tertiary education a degree or diploma can you tell us a little bit about what's ahead of you maybe away from the writing is it all intrinsically linked or are there are you separating those two lives i kind of just have the the writing life i suppose and everything else is just a bit of a an inconvenience which is a very mature way to think of it but it is um 
it is what I would like to do and it's what I see myself doing regardless of if it's what I should be doing. Um, heading off to tertiary education for me is kind of the logical next step. Um, I'd, I'd like to understand with more detail and in more depth and be exposed to more people who will be able to tell me what's good and what's not and more importantly why, like to give me a real sense of... Um, a sense of the fact that, you know, it doesn't all just come from imagination. It can have really tangible tendrils out there in the world if you can understand how, how to project those. Uh, I mean, in 15 years, when I'm looking back on Better Than Bad and thinking, oh, God, what is that? I don't know. I'd like to think I'm still writing books, but what job I'll be doing, it would be fantastic if it was in the writing field, though that does seem like a very... Uh, a lightning, a bit of a lightning strike, like it's not necessarily what happens to most people who get into writing. Uh, but as long as I'm writing, and I don't mean to sound, you know, a bit retrograde, but I really don't care. <laughs> as long as I'm writing, I don't mind screwing around of odd jobs and living in crappy flats or whatever has to happen, as long as there is enough means to continue to put pen to paper or finger to keyboard, as it were, then I'll, I'll be fine, I'll be happy. And is that ethos going to carry through the work and the uni and balancing it all? Because I imagine it's going to be a really tough thing to balance work, uni, social, family, everything else, and the writing at the same time. Oh, it's going to be a nightmare, and it will not carry me through at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will it will stop being an ethos and kind of, you know, a self-determined statement and almost become a bit of an obligation, but I, I don't think I'll ever stop. Did last year, the events of last year, everything that happened, the book being published, uh, your diagnosis... Has that shaped your perspective, looking ahead? Um, the, the book being published was totally surreal. It was, it was very fortifying. It was very inspiring, and it gave me that, that real kick to keep doing it and to really get another book out and to get another book out after that. Um, as far as a diagnosis goes, I've, I've never felt better, and I suppose that is because I am better. Um, I really can't stress enough that anyone who is dealing with mental health issues, whatever they might be, and as hard as it might be and as fine as you think you are, um, the first step is to realise that you, there is a bit of a problem going on there and that you're not defined by the problem, you're defined by the person beneath it. And if you can look back on it later on and see something funny in that or see something inspiring in the way that, uh, the way that your life was then you'll probably have something that is going to resonate a lot more with people than something you wrote in the midst of, you know, a manic episode. Because people will be able to relate to it and people will be able to see a little glimmer of hope in the idea that they might be able to get better too and that they're not defined by what's wrong. What advice would you give to young writers out there, particularly those who are maybe struggling to, to find their way? Listen, listen to criticism. Don't never be uh try try you you won't succeed because i'm t absolutely recommending something that i don't always do myself but try not to be emotional if someone doesn't like something you've done um if enough people don't like what you've done accept that that maybe wasn't the best thing to do and look at it and do something else do a different kind of writing try find a different style um i'm not you definitely shouldn't pander to an audience like your sense of artistic fulfillment is the most important thing but if, if your goal is to have other people read your writing, then you have to meet them halfway and it has to be entertaining for them. Um, on top of that, I would say keep, keep reading. 
read read lots and lots and lots. There's a lot of, um, you know, this this kind of doomsday sense that books are falling apart and people will stop reading in 10 years, which I don't really think is true. Um, you kind of look at the way books are selling and how many are being made into movies and there's, there's so much going on there and there is such a wide community of people who are writing and really just immerse yourself in it and totally roll with whatever happens. Just keep doing it. That's the most important thing. Just keep doing it, regardless. There's one more thing I want to ask you because you just touched on it and that is... What is it about the book, the printed book, that is that still makes it relevant today? I think it's just there's nothing quite like it. There is, you know, a DVD is a little bit like a CD and a Blu-ray is, no one really knows why it's better than a DVD, but it apparently is. Um, whereas recently uh, they've just released a bunch of stats and e-books have dropped off like significantly in popularity, whereas um, physical editions have jumped. I think a little bit of it is there is a nice aestheticism to it. It's really nice to have a bookshelf crammed full of books and it's really nice to have one with you and to read one and to catch someone's eye who's reading a book that you know and you maybe strike up a conversation about that, whereas you won't have that with a tablet. You won't have that sense. You won't even People might not even know you're reading a book. You might just look like you're on a tablet. I, I think it is, in a kind of a fitting way to describe it, I think a book itself is a timeless classic. It's a, a staple of every household, whether it's, you know, from the most creased stained cookbook or the most coveted first edition. There's just nothing quite like a book on a shelf or a coffee table and it will draw anyone's eye, even people who are not really interested in reading. I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. Jack, you've got a huge amount of passion, obviously. You've got plenty of perspective as well and we'll be following you really closely over the next few years. How do people get your book on their shelf? Uh, At the moment, the best place to buy it would be from my website, which is www.byjackhunter.blog. Um, on top of that, Blue Dragon Books in Glenbrook currently has a few on their shelves. And hopefully I'll be able to update people with a few more stores in the near future, but I'm still waiting to receive what will be a tidal wave of emails. Jack Hunter, thank you very much for joining the Passion and Perspective podcast. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by the Western Weekender.